Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. More people than ever are living online. According to a 2021 study from the Pew Research Center, 85% of Americans use a smartphone. But how much do we know about the data that we put into our phones? And how much do we know about the human labor on the other side of our most favorite apps? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, how tech platforms use our data to shape our daily lives and the global economy. Coming up, we'll talk to a public policy researcher about digital privacy. And later, how will the Sprint T-Mobile merger impact our phone service here in the U.S.? But first, let's talk about artificial intelligence. At a basic level, AI is used to find patterns in massive amounts of data and learn from human behavior. And that human component is integral to how AI works. But because AI learns from people, it also learns our biases. According to a recent series from MIT Technology Review, companies seem to be reinforcing systems of inequality in a way that's reminiscent of European colonialism. Karen Howe is China tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal and former senior AI editor at MIT Technology Review. She reported on this topic earlier this year for MIT Technology Review. Karen, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me, Kalila. You know, we hear the the words artificial intelligence or AI in so many sectors of our lives, not just the things that we would consider being relevant in terms of tech, but all of these aspects. So from your work, what is artificial intelligence and how does it really impact our daily lives? So you're using AI probably every hour of your day. Like when you check your email, you write an email and Gmail does that thing where it starts to auto-complete your sentences, that's AI. When you're checking Twitter, when you're checking Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all of those are recommendation algorithms, that's AI. In terms of the impact that this technology has on our lives, I mean, it's huge. It's completely integrated into the infrastructure of, of anything we do on the internet. When I think about how pervasive AI is, given the examples that you just gave, and and I'm thinking of how many people across a range of identities and demographics and groups interact in this way, it always raises concerns about not just vulnerability, but the ways that this can be used and misused. And so earlier this year, you and your team released a series of articles for the MIT Tech Review called AI Colonialism. And you talk about this idea, and I, I want to get this exact quote, AI is repeating the patterns of colonial history. Tell us more about what that means. Like any industry in the world, um, AI is also, it's, it's an industry. The technologies that are built were built at companies like Google, like Facebook, like Apple, and they were built for making profit. Um, and like any industry that we've seen historically, we just naturally repeat patterns of history where um, technologies are, are built in ways that end up 
benefiting and um, enriching people who are already privileged and have power and unfortunately dispossessing or putting down people who do not. Um, so we saw this in the fashion industry, for example, where you see these factory workers that are in developing countries that have to do this menial labor and incredibly dangerous labor um, before there was really industry-wide standards for how to actually uh, make sure that those workers were treated well. You see the same exact thing with the AI industry now. So AI technology, as we know of it today, it requires an enormous amount of examples for these algorithms to learn um, how to actually automate certain tasks. So the canonical example is Facebook's content moderation. That content moderation, it, it, it wasn't automated overnight, and it's still largely not automated. There are humans that are actually looking at violent posts, nudity, uh, hate speech, and they're flagging that um, and teaching these algorithms through thousands, millions of examples. This is the thing that you need to remove. And someone has to do that. Those people largely sit in lower income communities, lower income countries. And as we've seen, with reporting that has been done on these workers, it can be really traumatizing. It can be really terrible conditions. And that's just one example. I appreciate you for reminding us that there is a human aspect of this. And your team talked about the legacy, for example, of European colonialism. And you were clear to make the point that you don't want to set this up as a one-to-one comparison because you don't want to dismiss the violence and the trauma that was associated with European colonialism. We understand that point about labor conditions, whether it's fast fashion or artificial intelligence. Are these workers being paid and compensated well, so to speak, for this kind of repeated exposure that they're experiencing? Yeah, I I really appreciate the point that you brought up about this this distinction. Like I I talk in um, the articles that I write about how we we can use colonialism as sort of like a guideline or framework for understanding what is happening, but we shouldn't actually just say callously that is literally repeating colonialism because there were some really devastating things that happened um, during European colonialism that are, it's not sort of the same thing that's happening now. But um, what we see is there are countries in crisis right now, like Venezuela, where um, there's like extreme hyperinflation and a lot of white collar workers, well-educated workers that are suddenly have suffered devastating financial losses who need work and have come online into this gig economy, this AI gig economy, looking for these types of tasks. And to answer your, your question of like, are these workers paid well? No, they're not paid well at all. And What we see in Venezuela is that these workers, like some of them orchestrate their entire lives around these AI gig working platforms. So I spoke with a woman who she was actually a Venezuelan migrant in Colombia because I was not physically able to go to Venezuela, but I was able to make a trip to Colombia. I went to her house and she described to me like she sits at her computer day in and day out because she works for this platform that feeds her these tasks from large companies like TikTok from uh, companies like Google, where um, when the task appears, she has like a few seconds to claim it. Otherwise, it'll disappear because there are all of these other workers around the world, many of them also living in countries of crisis that are scrambling to try and get that task 
do it um, as quickly as possible and as accurately as possible and then get paid pennies. I'm listening to you talk about this and it is horrifying to think about the ways that this has completely transformed people's lives. And we know when we transform individual lives, there are also community-wide impacts. So one of the, the places where this is becoming really important in terms of thinking about human rights, thinking about global issues that aren't unique to particular countries, even if countries are now grappling with this, is how surveillance is amplifying some of these inequalities and hierarchies and acts of exploitation that many countries have been fighting against. And now AI adds a different dimension. And one of the countries that gets talked about in your work is South Africa, where there is this concern Mm -hmm. of how surveillance is being used to imperil the lives of its residents. Can you talk to us more about what's happening in South Africa? I ended up finding myself in South Africa because they have this really interesting, terrible thing that's happening right now, where just like the entire global surveillance industry, you see a lot of um, these dynamics where the surveillance technologies are developed by companies that want profit, and then they end up in the hands of governments that want power. And then they're used to surveil people who don't have that power. Like in the U.S., you see that a lot of police are starting to use facial recognition, and the communities that are over-surveilled are communities of color. They're low-income communities. Um, they're communities that have been disenfranchised. That's why they're sort of, they, they get targeted first. And you see the same exact thing happening in South Africa, except that it's also much more privatized. So it's not just governments that are wielding this surveillance. Um, It's companies themselves that are putting these cameras up and then licensing out these camera feeds to other companies um, who might run privatized police forces or or privatized security forces or or these like little private armies as, as they're sort of sometimes called. And what you notice, like when I was in South Africa, like driving on these streets, I am really stark. Like the people who are paying for these privatized police uh, and security forces and who get to pay for these like camera feeds um, to, to spy on people, um, most of them are white. And the people who are actually being spied on are mostly black um, because it's it's very much um a continuation of the the historical apartheid that happened in South Africa. Like the, the people that were disenfranchised were the Black people. And they, because of intergenerational trauma, intergenerational poverty, don't have the capital to necessarily resist the surveillance technologies that are encroaching in their neighborhoods and their communities. As I'm thinking about that history of apartheid in South Africa and the many ways that Black residents of South Africa were rendered powerless in order to combat that, they were fighting against the state. And so what I'm hearing from you is not only are they fighting against the state, quote unquote, but they are now fighting against their fellow residents, others in other neighborhoods, and that makes it even more difficult. But it also means that often the people in greatest need of safety and protection are being exploited in that process. That's what we're seeing in South Africa. That's what we've seen historically. But it's also what we see in the United States of neighborhoods who are beset by violence saying we want to be safe. But why do we have to give up all of our rights in order to do that when we don't know who's using this technology or how it can be used against us? 
are there trends or things that you're seeing in Venezuela and South Africa and other countries that you also say are happening in the United States or that people in the U.S. should pay attention to? I mean, all of these things are happening in the U.S. You know, like the workers in Venezuela, there are also workers in the U.S. that are doing the same exact thing, living the same lifestyle, but perhaps with a slightly, slightly better quality of life because there's sort of like a minimum wage that these companies will pay out because there's more laws and legal frameworks to protect labor rights in the U.S. versus Venezuela. The facial recognition thing is also, of course, happening. And you see like also things like just Google search, for example, Google search, every time you search something, it is also using AI. And there was this incredible book called Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Noble, which is about how Google search is itself perpetuating all of these historical discrimination patterns because when these algorithms learn by association to parse what you could possibly mean, they also just learn general like racist and sexist associations. So um, Sophia Noble talks in her book about how when you used to search Black girls, it would pop up porn. But if you search white girls, like it would pop up like school children. On this show, Karen, I always like to have our listeners think about what do we do? This, I think I said to you at the start of our conversation, this is both fascinating and overwhelming at the same time. What can we do to be more responsible as consumers or to be more aware as consumers about the magnitude of what you're discussing? To go back to this parallel with like the fast fashion industry, I mean, back then when there wasn't when there wasn't visibility into these these like labor practices that were happening in fashion, it also felt sort of almost impossible to change anything. But consumers actually created a lot of collective action. They came together. They started advocating on behalf of workers that weren't necessarily in the country that they were living in and started putting a lot more pressure on these companies to actually create ethical um, supply chains and change the way that they treat their workers. And then there started being more international guidelines put in place, um, more laws being passed around the world. Um, So I think the process is sort of similar. The trick here is that with fashion, it's much easier to touch a piece of clothing and understand it as physical and realize that another human touched it and made it. And with AI, you just don't have that same experience. So I think the first step is really for more people to talk about that aspect, that there are humans to raise awareness about that and then kind of continue to build on some of the the pathways that we've seen other activists and consumers and other industries create for this kind of collective action and, and collective change. One of the last parts of your series imagines what it would be like to have AI that is not discriminatory. And you've mentioned the importance of companies in this, these behemoth companies that stand to benefit quite a bit from their current practices, but you actually offer some ideas of what could be a different space. What are one or two things that you would like companies to do in order to move away from this discriminatory extension that we're seeing right now? So this, the last story that you mentioned, it's um, this really incredible story about a group of Maori 
journalists, actually. They run a radio station in Aotearoa, which is um, the Maori word name for what ultimately became New Zealand. Um, And they were trying to create a speech recognition algorithm for their language because their language was disappearing from racist assimilation practices that for uh, two generations did not allow Maori children to learn their own language. They were only allowed to speak English. Um, And so they were creating these speech recognition algorithms to try to transcribe some of this archival content. They were a radio station, so they have all of this archival content in Maori, and they wanted to put it up on the internet with captions so that people could listen to their own language and see the captions and, and start absorbing and learning the language in that way. And what they did was they saw the way that these tech giants sort of just assume that consumer data is theirs for the taking. Like if we think about like the way that surveillance capitalism has run, it's kind of insane. We just allow companies to take our data uh, and not compensate us. (laughs) They don't ask for consent. And so these Maori technologists, they they were like, we should A, ask for consent, B, uh, find ways to make sure that this ultimately benefits the people that we get the data from, and C, make sure that the data never ever falls in the hands of people who might use it to harm this community instead. And so based on those three principles, they created a whole bunch of protocols, processes, Um, they created a legal license to essentially collect and safe keep this data in ways that are respectful of the Maori community, of their Maori values. And that I think is ultimately what we would wanna see companies do in the future. I appreciate you for reminding us not just of the humanness of this, but also the power of our agency and collective action to imagine something different and do something different. Karen Howe is a China tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She's former senior AI editor at the MIT Technology Review. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Kalila. When we return, what does digital privacy look like in a post Roe v. Wade era? And how is our data being used? And later, a look inside the merger between T-Mobile and Sprint. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready, so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. 
Every time you go online, whether it's to browse social media, get directions, or listen to your favorite podcast, you leave a little digital information about yourself. This information is then collected by tech companies like Facebook and Google, who then sell that data to advertisers. But with so much information being generated by us online, some advocates now question just how much privacy we actually have. Who has access to our data and what could that data be used for? Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee is Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. She's author of the forthcoming book, Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. Nicole, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. And the book will be out later this year. So thank you for the shout out. I'm working really diligently, but you know, the, the pandemic has demonstrated that though you have more time, you really don't. <laughs> we are all navigating that. And I, I want to talk about something else that we are all navigating right now, especially as many of us engage even more in the space. And that is digital privacy. It sounds like a really straightforward term. But what we know is that there's a lot of murkiness when it comes to what we think we're putting out into the digital space and what's actually being collected. So share with our listeners, how vulnerable are we when it comes to digital data and privacy? You know, that is such a great question because I think we are very vulnerable, right? We live in a society where being connected really dictates not only your quality of life based on, you know, your ability to have remote care or do distance learning as a student, your ability to work from home, for example, but it also impacts, you know, what information is being shared over these networks and the extent to which there's some data security embedded in that kind of information that is being swapped pretty much on a moment by moment basis, right? We used to be able to say that it was a longer lead time, but now everything is basically in real time. And so right now, users are not necessarily quite clear of how their data is being collected, how it's being stored, how it's being used and potentially repurposed by potential advertisers or private sector companies who are leveraging it for marketing or efficiency purposes, and even the federal government. Um, and a good example of that is, you know, when we went in to take our COVID test, we gave our information sometimes to our local pharmacies. And again, that data, even though it's been collected for the public interest, may have future and long-term consequences on particular people, especially more vulnerable communities. If we are sharing this data in an everyday way of so many different areas, what exactly should we be concerned about when it comes to how companies are learning from our digital information? You know, that is something that I think we should be asking ourselves each day, but we make these trade-offs when it comes to convenience, right? I just testified before the U.S. House Committee responsible for the custom uh, border protection folks. And essentially, you know, when we travel we're taking a photo that gets stored, you know, of our passport or our driver's license that allows us entry and re-entry back into the U.S. or in some cases, you know, exit to other countries. And we take that for granted because it's a really easy fix. But the trade-off is that that data is being collected and potentially stored somewhere. It may not be immediately deleted in some cases. We're finding that border protection is actually very good at deleting data and has very good privacy guardrails. 
But, you know, that does not necessarily assume that this short term fix is going to have long term impact. And so I think for us, we should be worried as consumers around a couple of things, if you don't mind, I'll share. One is obviously sort of who's getting this data and how is that data being used to amplify certain things that we may or may not have consented into. So we may purchase on a consumer website, for example, and then start receiving ads from that company. And is that something that we've consented to? Like to advise people when you say, I accept the cookies, well, that means that you're allowing the company in many respects to trail your internet behavior. And I think most Americans are not as familiar with how the mechanics of the internet works, that it makes it harder for them to manage their own privacy. The other area that I get concerned about is the discriminatory uses of the type of data that is collected. Whether we are of color, women, men, people with ability or disability, people from various parts of the country, rural, urban, people who are intersection of all of that, LGBTQ plus a person of color. All of that information really gets stacked onto the digital space in ways that it can infer potential behaviors about you. We call that algorithmic bias in many respects because the predictive capacity can lend itself towards the approval or rejection of a loan for a house. It could actually result in the denial of employment. It can lead to uh, not getting the best quality health care. We have to understand as consumers that the reciprocity that we think comes with our ability to access many of these sites for free comes with a trade-off. And I think going forward, our privacy compared to other countries like the European Union and even China for that case, who have begun to see just how important this asset is, we as a country have to think about, and we as consumers more so have to think about, what is our sensitive data, you know, including our biometric and financial data, our faces, our fingerprints, you know, our purchasing behaviors, how do those identifiers How are they equally uncoupled where people can easily target and surveil us? And some of those actors are not the best ones that are actually accessing this information. You mentioned what we do as Americans and what we need to do as Americans to really think about that digital footprint and how it connects to these everyday aspects of our lives, but how it also has security risk. And so I want to talk about, you know, what other countries are doing in this space and leading the way. And so you mentioned the European Union. I want to talk about the EU's general data protection regulation provision. And although that was adopted in 2018 and has now gone into effect, they're continuing conversations about whether that provision goes far enough to really tighten what data companies can collect and then sell. What's the level of compliance with that regulation? And do you think that it goes far enough to set that standard? Well, look, I think that the European Union with the general data protection rules has gone very far, right? They're very prescriptive. Uh, In my travels across the uh, uh, ocean, and talking to regulators and other uh, stakeholders, there is a different kind of uh, mystification around innovation to the extent that they really feel that consumers must have agency over their data, meaning they should consent into not just the real situations, but the hypothetical concerns. And so in the EU, under the general data protection rules, that is why we are all accepting the cookies, okay? The cookies matter in the EU, and you have to physically consent to that. And there are companies in the U.S. 
that do not partake in the European Union's economy simply because they're not equipped or they don't have scale or the funding to actually allow their systems to harmonize with those uh, GDPR rules. With that being the case, the United States is a little different, right? Because these are American companies, first and foremost, that are being highly regulated overseas. But more importantly, you know, we're different because of the relationship that we have with the internet. Here we see the internet as an open market asset, largely driven by capitalism. In the European Union and other places, I'll talk about China in just a moment, you know, they see the internet as something that plays a role in whether or not they're going to have democratic stability or the extent to which consumers are openly aware about what the innovation does, the potential harms. And guess what? The GDPR in some instances has slowed down innovation. And, and in my talks with people from the EU, they're okay with that, right? If it cannot be clear, transparent, disclosed without some type of regulatory enforcement, uh, they're okay with not having it. Where in the United States, that would cut into our permissionless ideals where innovators are basically driving the heart of our economy. Um, you know, places like China are different. You know, China is a heavily surveilled country. And, you know, it's interesting that they actually passed a sense of privacy legislation to give them some level of regulatory enforcement when it comes to bad actors with among big companies. But they basically do not give the type of privacy that we have in the United States. You know, we don't surveil people in at least an explicit way. <laughs> we may do it implicitly, right? Uh, in terms of the type of um, coveted operations that we have. But places like China really have customers and consumers and citizens know that their every move is watched. And that's for the purposes of their innovation, as well as, um, you know, the way that they run their authoritarian society. So I would just say, you know, we in the United States, unfortunately, we're not there yet. <laughs> we're close. We've got something in Congress. I talk about it a little later. But we're a little bit behind the eight ball when it comes to having some framework in place to protect American consumers from manipulation and exploitation. In the United States, only five states have passed digital privacy laws. Connecticut is one of those states passed a provision this year that will go into effect in 2023. What do you see as the major hurdle? I heard you mention American exceptionalism, that sort of individualism. What do you see as the major barrier to having more states catch up to have these protections in place? Well, it's, this is a really interesting, like, twofold discussion, right? On the one hand, we saw in the last four years, at least under the Trump administration, more states be more proactive and asserting their own privacy legislation. California, Connecticut, Washington, I think is another state. And these states have basically, you know, put in place, I think, authorities that their attorney generals will be able to enforce on a very statewide granular level. The challenge, however, is that if we have privacy laws among all 50 states and um, our territories, that we'll have a patchwork of privacy standards. So there's a possibility that what is acceptable in California may not be acceptable in Connecticut, may not be acceptable in Washington state. So we have to be careful of not having a federal privacy standard that at least allows some general governance with some movement for state action, particularly since the attorney generals for states will probably be the primary enforcers. We just don't want a quilt that is compiled with patches when we're talking about how we protect consumers from bad actors in the digital marketplace. So I do think it's important for us to move closer to something that's more of a federal bill. In the last month, we've actually seen what has been a series of starts and stops over the last couple of years 
We've seen bipartisan support for what's called the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which is a bill that will really look at the identifiers in areas like hiring and others, the way that companies collect, process, transfer data. Most notably, maybe move away from user consent in terms of opt-in, but maybe give more people agency to opt out or to delete. So these conversations are actually having now. And there's also a conversation in this draft legislation, if it can get to consensus to move on to the Senate, is that it will address civil rights concerns as well as some of the preemptive um, authorities when it comes to states who already have existing privacy laws. So what's happened in the United States, you know, in essence, is the states have set a high bar, but unfortunately, it's not been the type of pressure we need to actually have a national data standard. So we're talking about digital privacy here. We're talking about digital consent. We're talking about that advocacy. But all of that unfolds within this broader discussion and debate in the United States about federalism. What is the role of the federal government and how states play into this? And so I want to share with our listeners a current example where we're seeing this play out in exactly the ways that you mentioned. And that is after the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court around Roe v. Wade, kicking it back to the states. We saw all of these posts around social media of fears and concerns that companies could collect and sell data about people who were seeking abortions and that perhaps they could collect that data and share it with law enforcement. Companies like Google's have said that they'll delete this information, but there is still a fear for many people of how this personal private decision and that data collection can be used. How concerned should people be about this, about how that data can be used in a punitive way, given the kinds of things you've just discussed about not having a cohesive federal standard and being left to the will of individual states? Oh, I think we're seeing that now. I mean, this is the most appropriate time to talk about it. Look at just what happened in Kansas where we're going to see different states sort of uh, wage concern around whether or not they're going to be an abortion-friendly state for uh, women. Listen, at the end of the day, we don't want privacy to become something where your asset sort of trails the potential for conviction simply because you looked up the word abortion or you might have shared information with somebody else. Or in some cases, and this was actually existing before uh, the decision, where people are using period trackers, right? And those trackers are being collected into private, you know, digital health tools and could be potentially used against young women if subpoenaed. I mean, at the end of the day, I think every listener out there should know that we're not unfortunately at a state where you can say that your information is truly protected. And that's why the recent legislation on the Hill is really important to get to closure. I cannot say it enough. And often that privacy, that awareness, that digital literacy is conditioned by access and having access that is inclusive. And that leads us to your forthcoming book, Digitally Invisible. What do you mean by that term? Yeah, no, I think, you know, we as consumers and particularly people who are of color, who are very poor, less education than others, including, you know, rural whites, farmers that I met as part of my book tour there's a group of people that are not necessarily connected. They did not know really what that relevance of connectivity was until the pandemic hit. And we had to move from analog to 
digital services. And we couldn't get into hospitals. We couldn't get into our schools and our workplaces. And I think for people who didn't realize this, it was a slew of millions of people who were not experiencing the type of digital access that we thought everybody had. They were invisible. And regardless of how many times they told us they were invisible economically, socially, politically, we just didn't listen. And now we live in a society where basically every convenience, you know, is driven by something that is online. So it's very important for us to make sure that people can participate in what I call this public privatized town square, (laughs) because these are where the conversations are happening and you pay a surcharge of being digitally excluded. The other thing, and I love the way you asked this question, right? Because when you're not online, basically your privacy is implicitly assumed, meaning people infer other things about you. You're not an active purchaser. An advertiser doesn't know anything about you except that you don't participate. You know what I mean? They can maybe look at your zip code or maybe where you're accessing an internet uh, connection at your local library. They can tell that you're poor. They can tell that you're rural. They can tell that you're older just by the combination of different things that you do online, which may not be much, right? It may just be, I need to sign up for unemployment. They can tell that. And so we need to raise our awareness of these types of digital exclusions that limit full participation in our democracy. I call it in my book, second-class digital citizenship. And at the same time, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this as well. We need to also make sure that when we're protecting citizen privacy, that we're not necessarily protecting citizen rage. It's really important that we understand that, yes, there are private actors, but when we see things like what happened in Uvalde with the gun violence and the heinous murders of those children, or what happened in Buffalo and the shooting of Black consumers on a Saturday in a grocery store, these communities are not private. They're pretty wide open in the dark web. You know, the FBI and others know how to get to them. So I think we need to also not confuse the fact that we can still have our Fourth Amendment and First Amendment rights, whatever the case may be, our constitutional rights. But we have to always remember that we're not protecting only rage, but we're also protecting assets that are part of your citizenship in this country. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee is Senior Fellow in Governance Studies and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. She's author of the upcoming book, Digital Invisible, how the internet is creating the new underclass. Coming up, what the recent merger of cell phone companies T-Mobile and Sprint could mean for consumers and the marketplace. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In 2018, after years of battling in court, the Department of Justice and the Federal Communications Commission approved a merger between cell phone carriers T-Mobile and Sprint. T-Mobile's $26 billion acquisition of Sprint marked a watershed moment for the industry, and it went from four national carriers down to just three. Today, the new T-Mobile promises that its service will be cheaper and better than ever. But what should we really expect from the industry going forward? Sasha Segan is the lead mobile analyst for PCMag.com. Sasha, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks. It's great to be here. 
So this merger between T-Mobile and Sprint is generating a lot of conversation, lots of what ifs and possibilities. But before we get into the merger, I want to talk about the role that these two companies played within the market. You've been covering the market for a couple of decades, and there's a lot of change that has happened. So how big of a player would we say T-Mobile and Sprint were in the market, and what did they contribute before the merger? T-Mobile and Sprint were the two underdogs in a four or five player market for several years. Um, And being underdogs, they tended to make maverick moves. For instance, they would be more likely to take a chance on selling a smartphone from a new small smartphone company, or they would be more aggressive at wholesale sales selling their network or renting their network to uh, small providers who then offer it to people at a very low cost. So they really had this maverick positioning, both of them, where they were jockeying to get subscribers from the two really big players, uh, AT&T and Verizon. And people were really worried that that was going to be lost when the two merged. Before we talk about some of the concerns about that merger, What were the companies saying in terms of why T-Mobile and Sprint wanted to merge and thought that this could really be an innovation in the industry? So the companies were saying that neither T-Mobile nor Sprint alone had enough airwaves or enough money to buy new airwaves to be able to compete with AT&T and Verizon in the world of 5G. The 5G era and the current smartphone era involves people transferring so much data on their phones, taking up a lot more of the wireless spectrum, the airwaves, than we used to. And T-Mobile and Sprint were saying, we each don't have enough, but if we were together, we would have enough to compete. One of the lessons of the pandemic has been a realization of just how dependent people are on having access to fast, reliable internet accessibility, but also getting a sense of how many different sectors of the U.S., for example, are connected to this. And it raises concerns when you have these mergers, this consolidation of access points. It raises lots of concerns about Who wins and who loses in this? Why have people been so critical or concerned about this particular merger when we know that this is sort of an industry trend that happens more often than maybe others realize? Well, there's several reasons. Uh, First of all, in the wireless industry, there's a lot of concern over what's called four to three mergers. In the wireless industry around the world, Um, There are a lot of situations where having a fourth carrier makes the industry more competitive. The fourth carrier is very often the maverick who shakes things up and keeps things lively. Whereas when you have three major carriers, they can be a lot cozier and they can often be slower moving when it comes to especially price innovation, keeping prices low. People were also really concerned about the effect that this would have on jobs. Sprint is has been a major employer in Kansas City. T-Mobile is based in Seattle. Both of them were very aggressive at recruiting independent dealers in shopping malls on main streets uh, to sell their products 
uh, especially to younger consumers, immigrant consumers, uh, ethnic minority consumers, and there were worries about losing jobs in those areas. And finally, there is just a general concern that uh, these two mavericks coming together means less opportunity for the people who do business with them to have multiple customers. This is something called monopsony rather than monopoly, where not the number of providers, but the number of customers is reduced. And uh, in our country right now, phones are really almost all sold through carriers. And so for a phone maker, that means you're going from having four customers to having three customers. And that can be a big difference. You've talked about that status of going from four to three and what's happening in other places as well. And so we've heard a lot of conversation about the mobile market and carriers in Canada. We're hearing this in the United States. And yet we don't hear these concerns as much with European countries who are also in this position of having fewer carriers. What is it that you think the U.S. and Canada could learn from Europe and how they navigate these changes? The European mobile market is uh, much more tightly regulated. In general, in the U.S. and Canada, we've, requ- uh, we've relied on multiple carriers competing to keep prices down, which has worked to some extent in the US and uh, has not worked in Canada, but the government keeps trying to make it happen. In Europe, they have things like anti-tying laws uh, to prevent uh, carriers from monopolizing the smartphone sales market and other regulations, for instance, uh, forcing carriers to offer uh, their networks at regulated rates to wholesale customers to uh, create a virtual carrier market for low-priced plans. So there's just more regulation in Europe, and that creates a more consumer-friendly situation. So Europe sees more regulation, more rules and provisions, often to protect its consumers. But in this particular deal in the U.S., we did see conversation agreement with the DOJ and FCC that in order to approve the merger back in 2018, part of the agreement was that the DISH network would grow. So T-Mobile would sell off part of its business, lease out some of its network, and all of that would then support the growth. Why do you think that DISH Network was this sort of favored contingency point with DOJ? And do you think DISH could become a competitive fourth carrier in the future? DISH has been collecting spectrum airwaves for 10 years now and not building a network on it. And it's run by a very savvy, very tricky political player, a man named Charlie Ergen. He basically made a deal with the Trump-era FCC and DOJ to be their savior in terms of this merger. And uh, so they have started to build the network, and I've actually tested their network. And uh, they're building it pretty frantically. It is real. But financial analysts are concerned that DISH doesn't have enough money and DISH isn't spending enough money to make the network big enough to truly be competitive on a national basis. Are there particular parts of the country that you have concerns about what these changes would mean? And I'm thinking here of rural communities that say they are already struggling with the carriers that we have. There's this concern that reducing the carriers or changing access could impact that. Do you think that's a realistic concern here, or do you see this as just part of 
the normal trend that we should expect in this industry? I don't think that this merger has reduced rural coverage. In fact, I think that this merger has increased rural coverage. One of the tricky things when thinking about this merger is that to some extent, T-Mobile and Sprint were right. Combining their uh, sets of airwaves has made for a better network. It's allowed T-Mobile to expand more into rural areas. It's let T-Mobile offer this wireless home internet service they now have, which can help free people of the cable companies. So there are good things about being a bigger company with more resources. The question and the worry is really about what innovation this prevents in the future. And when further down the road, investors demand higher prices from consumers to get more return on their stock. People in the tech industry are always thinking about the future and future innovation. What would you say to our listeners would be one thing that we should be looking forward to in the future or preparing for as you think about the innovation in this space? Well, the one short-term thing that I'm very excited about that I just mentioned is this expansion of wireless home internet service. Home internet service has been a problem in the United States for years. Most of us are under the monopolistic thumb of our cable companies. And uh, the first real application for 5G airwaves has been these competitive home internet services from both T-Mobile and Verizon, which could potentially free us from the monopoly of the cable companies. And we at PC Mag, we just did a survey called Reader's Choice. And I can tell you that people are thrilled by this possibility. People are rating these services very highly just because they now have a competitive option. And so in the short term, getting free of your cable company, that's a real thing. Freedom is always good and always welcomed. Sasha Segan is lead analyst for mobile at PCMag.com. Sasha, thank you so much. Thank you. Disrupted is produced by James Scoville Wolf, J. Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Katie Tularski. This is our last week with our producer, James Scoville Wolf. James will be heading off to study inequality and public policy in the fall. We are so excited for what you will accomplish and grateful for all that you brought to our team here at Disrupted. We wish you the best, James. You can listen to all of the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <music>